Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, host of the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Clinical Guidelines podcast series. Today, we'll be discussing the official clinical practice guidelines of the American Thoracic Society and the Infectious Disease Society of America on diagnosis and treatment of adults with community-acquired pneumonia. The community-acquired pneumonia guidelines address pneumonia that's acquired outside of the hospital setting. We'll talk in a moment how that is different than what the old guidelines used to talk about when we distinguished what used to be known as healthcare-associated pneumonia versus community-acquired pneumonia. Also recognize that these guidelines focus on patients in the United States who have not recently completed foreign travel um, and also those who do not have immunocompromising conditions. Joining us today, we're really privileged to have one of the chair of the guidelines committee, Dr. Joshua Medley. Dr. Medley is professor of medicine at the Mass General Hospital, as well as professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Medley. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. Can we start off by talking about, can, can you help us understand the terminology and and the slight shift in terminology, it used to be that there was healthcare-associated pneumonia and a separate category, community-acquired pneumonia, and healthcare-associated pneumonia encompassed a number of things. Can you just clarify for us the changes there? Sure. So when we last addressed these issues, which was over 10 years ago with the last guideline, we were all trying to wrestle with the problem that there were some unique pathogens causing pneumonia that was acquired outside of the hospital that weren't going to be treated with usual traditional therapies. Uh, And these pathogens in particular were methicillin-resistant staph aureus and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And what was put forward was an idea that patients who had had contact with the healthcare system, for example, by having recently been in the hospital or being on home intravenous antibiotics or dialysis, might be at increased risk for these pathogens. And the, the concept of healthcare associated pneumonia was born. And the idea was that you would treat with more expanded antibiotics for patients who were in that category. The problem is, it turns out that that, that concept turned out to be poorly predictive of patients who were going to have these pathogens. And what it led to was a a huge explosion of overuse of of very broad-spectrum antibiotics, in particular vancomycin and pseudomonas active agents, uh, that have never been shown to improve outcomes. In fact, outcomes are probably worse for patients who were treated for HCAP, and the frequency of, of these other pathogens in these patients was very low. So it's very clear that we needed to get away from that term, get rid of that concept, and really get back to the fundamentals of whether the patient is having community-acquired pneumonia, which is what this guideline is about, or hospital or ventilator-associated pneumonia, which is what last year's guidelines were about. Fantastic. So community-acquired pneumonia now encompasses patients, for instance, who are in nursing homes in the community, as well as general uh, patients in the community. Can you just briefly discuss the microbiology of community-acquired pneumonia. Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, This is one of the oldest topics that's been studied uh, in internal medicine. Um, We know that there are some important bacterial pathogens. Streptococcus pneumoniae is is perhaps the most well-studied one. And we still think a lot about strep pneumoniae, Haemophilus influenza, Moraxella, staph to some degree. Um, The issue that's become very interesting in the last several years, the last decade or two, has been with the introduction of a very effective pneumococcal conjugate vaccine for children, 
the frequency of pneumococcal infection in children and adults has declined significantly. And although we don't have the most precise estimates, there is increasing belief that the epidemiology of community-acquired pneumonia has shifted away from pneumococcus and much more to probably viral pathogens. And ultimately, this is going to have a big impact on how we treat patients. But for today, we still anchor all of our therapeutic decisions based on sort of the classic representation of, uh, of microbiology, which includes the major pathogens of strep pneumonia, haemophilus, and moraxella, and staph in, in certain situations. Great. That's helpful. So uh, when we're thinking about patients with community-acquired pneumonia, what's the place of gram stain, culture of respiratory secretions, as well as blood cultures? Um, so uh, it's clear to us that in the outpatient setting, there's really no role for additional diagnostic testing because the treatment is very straightforward, the outcomes are good, and diagnostic testing really is not going to add much to the management. In the inpatient setting, it's clear that when you have someone with severe pneumonia, um, in particular patients who end up in the ICU, these are patients for whom you really don't have, you don't want to have a, a margin of error about not covering all the possible pathogens. And so there we think additional diagnostic testing with sputum cultures, blood cultures, and antigen testing can be valuable, and we recommend it. The place where we also additionally recommended microbiological testing were for these patients for whom you might have a concern that they have one of these unusual pathogens, uh, in particular Pseudomonas or methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, and you're going to begin empirically covering for those pathogens because the patient is sick. We feel strongly that you should get microbiological tests in those settings because the absence of those pathogens at 48 hours, if the tests are negative, would allow you to de-escalate therapy. And so while we may not prevent one or two days of very broad spectrum coverage for sick patients with pneumonia, what we'd like to see is rapid de-escalation of that therapy when the microbiological testing doesn't support those diagnoses. Great. And then a specific microbiologic testing that is uh, becoming relevant as we enter into flu season. What's the place of uh, influenza testing? So um, we, we feel strongly that influenza is a very important not-to-be-missed pathogen. Uh, when influenza is prevalent in the community, we think testing uh, in the outpatient and inpatient setting is important uh, for at least two reasons. One is we believe prompt therapy with antivirals is effective uh, and is consistent with the influenza treatment guidelines that recently came out. And so we don't want to delay therapy uh, with uh, anti-influenza uh, antivirals. The other issue is obviously, particularly for hospitalized patients, that there are important infection control issues here. Uh, and as more patients come into the hospital in the winter with respiratory infections, understanding their influenza status is critical uh, in order to manage them in terms of their assignment to rooms. That's important. Um, the guidelines talk about clinical prediction rules to help us in deciding who needs to be admitted to the hospital versus who can be managed as an outpatient. I think for the sake of time, we'll refer our listeners back to the guidelines themselves to look at the details of those rules. It's helpful for everyone to know that they are validated clinical tools are available to help us with those decisions. Let's move on now and talk about antibiotics because there's been really pretty large changes in the recommendations for empiric treatment. So let's start with in the outpatient setting for patients without comorbidities, what are the antibiotics that are, are currently recommended and how has that changed in an important way from the old recommendations? So the recommendations in the outpatient setting for patients without comorbidities are as first-line therapy, amoxicillin or doxycycline, or potentially a macrolide if your local pneumococcal resistance rate to macrolides is less than 25%. 
And so there are two key changes here. First is we've, we've elevated monotherapy with a beta-lactam into, into monotherapy in the outpatient setting. Um, there's been increasing evidence that even in inpatients that this is a safe therapy in, in low-risk patients. Uh, and even though clearly we're not now treating for certain atypical pathogens, there's no evidence that outcomes are going to be any worse. We think it's a, a well-tried and safe therapy that people should be comfortable using in the outpatient setting. That's a big change. The other issue is that we've drawn even more attention than the last guideline to the increasing rate of macrolide resistance uh, in the United States and the fact that in many areas, the rates of resistance are 30 or plus more than 30 percent. And that's significant because we know there are treatment failures. And so, therefore, macrolides would not be first-line therapy in those settings. Thank you so much for going over that because that answers very specifically the question I've heard a lot of my colleagues ask when they were puzzled about this movement to uh, um, away from uh, macrolides. Um, how about recommendations for patients in an outpatient setting who have comorbidities? Yeah, so here we we broadened the empiric therapy to either amoxicillin or um, uh, uh, sorry, amoxicillin clavulanate combination or a cephalosporin with a macrolide or doxycycline. So here we're adding in the the atypical coverage or monotherapy with a respiratory fluoroquinolone. Uh, and there's really two issues that are driving the more expanded recommendation for outpatients with comorbidities. First off, they're sicker, and so the, the risk of, of not getting it right is greater, and we want to have you know, uh, more effective and comprehensive therapy so that patients don't progress and get sick uh, when they have these comorbidities. We also know that patients with comorbidities are at increased risk of drug-resistant infections, for example, beta-lactamase-producing hemophilus, uh, and therefore, the, the treatment recommendations are somewhat broader to cover for those possibilities. That's great. I, I love when recommendations that are evidence-based also line up with what logically and clinically would seem to make sense, and these do. Uh, let's now talk about another thing that's been, I think, confusing for a lot of clinicians, which is duration of treatment. Yeah, we have a, a pretty good evidence base now that indicates that five days of therapy for either outpatients or inpatients who are recovering uh, on schedule is completely adequate. Indeed, there are some studies that have suggested even shorter might be safe, although we didn't think that that evidence was good enough to go less than five days. But but five days is, is, is a perfectly adequate amount of therapy, and we believe that few patients will require more than five days. Certainly patients who have documented uh, methicillin-resistant staph or pseudomonas should get closer to seven days, which is consistent with the inpatient uh, uh, hospital-acquired pneumonia guidelines. Uh, we did discuss, and uh, I would indicate that there has been a growing role for the use of procalcitonin to help shorten the duration of therapy for patients with community-acquired pneumonia. But the trials that show that procalcitonin is helpful are really in settings in which people are routinely prescribing for much more than five to seven days. So we felt that if most people adopted our guideline and aimed for a five-day therapy and done, there really probably would not be much need for additional monitoring with a biomarker like procalcitonin. If, you're, if your uh, approach is to try to go more like 7 to 10 to 14 days, then yes, we would suggest that you use a biomarker because that may encourage you to shorten the duration of therapy. Makes sense. Let's move on to the inpatient setting. So patients admitted with community-acquired pneumonia but who are sick enough to be treated as an inpatient, what are the recommended antibiotics? So here again, in the inpatient setting, we do distinguish between a, sort of a non-severe and severe. Again, you can think about that. We use the ATS criteria of major and minor criteria, but effectively you can think about patients on the, on the floor, the general medical floor versus in the ICU. 
For the uh, non-severe inpatient pneumonia, the recommendation is a beta-lactam plus a macrolide or a respiratory fluoroquinolone. And for the, the patient in the ICU, the severe pneumonia, it's a beta-lactam plus a macrolide or a beta-lactam plus a fluoroquinolone. And I do want to point out that when we've given multiple choices, we've not pre-specified one choice dominant over another or a sequencing. We think that there are some individual issues that need to be taken into account here. One of them is that there's growing evidence about the safety side of some of these drugs, and uh, we recognize that particularly the increasing number of reports of concerns over fluoroquinolones, whether you're talking about vascular-related issues, colitis-related issues, or tendinopathy. And so that could clearly tip the balance in favor of a more beta-lactam-macrolide combination in those settings. Um, and so that, that is, uh, I think, an important consideration as you're making these choices. Also, we endorsed something which has been endorsed previously, that if the patient had previously failed a drug class in the outpatient setting, you should not use that same drug class again when they're admitted to the hospital. Excellent. And then where does risk factors for MRSA and Pseudomonas come into play here? Yeah, so this is probably one of the areas that we spent the most time on and has is, is really been the most challenging for us because even though I began by noting that there was well, there was a lot of overtreatment of uh, MRSA and Pseudomonas based on the HCAF criteria, we recognize that in some settings those are important pathogens. They do cause pneumonia and not treating them uh, is really a significant problem. Um, and so what we did here was, first of all, as I indicated, really try to emphasize the role of microbiological testing, because if you're going to empirically treat for those pathogens, you should do the testing and then be able to de-escalate if there's no evidence supporting them. Um, I think that's a, a very important component of this issue. Um, and then we did point out that there are certain settings in which the risk probably is much higher. It's not all of the categories that are in HCAP, but the two that stood out for us are Patients who have previously had MRSA or Pseudomonas isolated, particularly from the respiratory tract, they are at especially high risk of having recurrent uh, infections with those pathogens. And then patients who were recently in the hospital and received parenteral antibiotics are at a particularly unique high class, a high risk class. Clearly, in the longer run, what we need are better prediction rules and better tests to help us identify this small but important subset of patients who need treatment for these pathogens. But we thought that these new rules would help restrict the overuse of these uh, antibiotics, but not miss patients who needed those treatments up front. Finally, an issue that also comes up a lot is with regard to whether or not to cover for aspiration pneumonia, and if so, when? Yeah, so this is another bit of a departure. It's interesting, you know, if you think about the etiology of, of pneumonia, in essentially all cases, it's effectively an aspiration event. And so this idea that when an aspiration has been witnessed, suddenly the what you need to cover for changes uh, has been challenged a lot recently. And indeed, compared to some older studies, some newer microbiological studies have really raised doubts about whether anaerobes are really that much more prevalent in patients with witnessed aspiration events or concern for aspiration as an etiology than pneumonia. So we no longer recommend covering for, uh, additionally covering for anaerobes beyond the recommended treatments in the setting of concern over aspiration unless there's evidence for some kind of separative complication, for example, an abscess or empyema. Okay, that's, re that's really helpful. Um, for a while, people were talking about using steroids in the treatment of pneumonia. What do the guidelines say? Um, so as many uh, listeners will know, there have been a couple of meta-analyses in the last few years that have started to draw some attention to the potential benefits of using corticosteroids, particularly in patients with severe pneumonia. We very carefully reviewed all this literature and concluded that the evidence was not strong enough to at this point recommend 
<clears throat> excuse me, steroids for patients with any level of community-acquired pneumonia. Uh, there are some ongoing trials that will be reported soon that will help us make any additional decisions about that. But the only place for, for steroids now in patients with pneumonia are those who develop refractory shock and sepsis, so really along the lines of the sepsis guidelines, or patients who have uh, some type of steroid-responsive illness in addition to pneumonia. So, for example, uh, chronic obstructive lung disease or, or asthma. Let me come back now to influenza. And uh, there really are two questions. One, if a patient tests positive for influenza, but they have a pneumonia, should they still get antibiotics? And the other is for patients who uh, have a pneumonia uh, and are positive with influenza, does it matter how long they've been sick? Is it still the same guideline where after 48 hours you don't treat with an antiviral? Right. So let me take the second one first. Um, because pneumonia is a, a really significant and important complication of influenza, um, but consistent with the influenza guidelines that came out of IDSA and CDC, we believe that someone with pneumonia who tests positive for influenza should be treated with an antiviral regardless of the duration of their symptoms. So the two-day rule does not apply in this setting, and, and we think they should get, they should see oseltamivir, an anti-influenza agent. In terms of the antibacterial coverage, there's certainly, and I, I hinted at this early in the, in the discussion, that we think that viral alone pathogens are increasingly responsible for community-acquired pneumonia. And it stands to reason that at some point we're going to stop using antibacterial agents in some patients with pneumonia. The problem is at the present, we don't think we can accurately enough distinguish that subset of patients who have only viral pathogens as their etiology. So we believe that anybody with radiographic confirmed pneumonia, even if they're influenza positive, should have antibacterial coverage as part of their initial therapy. Now, if they have no other evidence of bacterial infection, they have no other inflammatory markers that suggest a bacterial infection, they get better quite quickly, it is possible that one could de-escalate the bacterial coverage in the first 48 hours and just treat them for a viral pneumonia. But we wouldn't recommend doing that up front uh, until it's the, the case has sort of clarified itself over the first couple of days. As we're winding down to the end of our podcast, what do the guidelines say about follow-up chest imaging for patients with pneumonia? So this was an old saw that many people will remember that you're supposed to get a follow-up chest x-ray anywhere from six weeks to three months out from pneumonia to demonstrate clearing and presumably to identify whether there was some other underlying structural problem that caused the pneumonia, for example, in early malignancy. Um, the data would suggest that the frequency of detecting those abnormalities is, is exceedingly low, and especially now that we have very clear guidelines around the use of screening, particularly uh, lung CT for screening for lung cancer in patients who are smokers, we think that the number of people who would actually benefit from routine follow-up chest radiography in this setting is really too low to warrant using it routinely. So for somebody who's recovered, we don't recommend routinely getting up follow-up chest radiography. Okay. Any other additional general comments before we bring things to a close? Well, uh, pneumonia remains an incredibly common uh, and high morbid, high mortality condition. Um, there's been a fair amount of movement and new information over the last 10 years, and so we're hoping that that will accelerate even more as new diagnostics and, in fact, some new anti-effectives come online. So I think one of the things that we may begin to see is that rather than waiting these long periods of time in between guidelines, we're hoping to get into a system where periodic, perhaps annual or biannual updates to these guidelines can occur so that they're just a lot more contemporaneous. 
That, that, that makes sense. So we, we really covered an incredible amount of ground today for 20 minutes. We started with the microbiology of community-acquired pneumonia, went on to discuss issues around testing, then discussed treatment for outpatient community-acquired pneumonia, outpatient-managed as well as inpatient-managed community-acquired pneumonia, and finished uh, by discussing uh, that there's no longer a recommendation for follow-up chest x-rays. There's a lot more than what we discussed today contained in the full guidelines. For more information on the guidelines uh, and, and a full version of the guidelines, go to the IDSA website at www.idsociety.org. Dr. Medley, thank you so much for all of our listeners for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. For the IDSA, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick. Thanks for listening.